Welcome to Radio Spoil, our second episode. Uh, we've got a great guest lined up. Let's go. Radio Espial. We explore and discover together. Joining us on Radio Spoil today. Radio Spoil is a global internet broadcast with uh, audio and video. Our focus is on media and how it deals with news. Our core areas will be publishing aviation technology and all other things considered when it becomes a significant aspect of media coverage. Okay, here we are, uh, episode two, and we have a great guest coming up uh, today, uh, James Nixon. This is very much uh, carry on from our first episode uh, with our guest Jeff Wise. If you look in the links, if you go to www. 
radioaspile.com. You can follow our previous episodes. But here we are for this episode. And uh, James Nixon, I'll tell you a little bit about James Nixon shortly. Uh, I'm not going to do too much of a preamble about this show. Uh, I did a lot of it in the first episode explaining who I am. I'm an investigative journalist. Um, I've talked a little bit about Radio Spoil. I'm going to go through a little bit of it now uh, just for new uh, followers and, and, and people joining the, the, the video podcasts. For the first time, uh, who am I? I'm a broadcaster and interviewer. I'm a freelance investigative journalist and publishing consultant. I've worked in the fields of uh, retail logistics, journalism, publishing and translation. I've uh, written and published a dozen books, written hundreds of articles and reported on many things over 30 years. Uh, Our guests are often people that I've known in many of those fields throughout the years uh, to bring you very much an informed opinion and view on subjects. Um, There are people I know through and through, uh, they have terrific insights uh, to add to a topic. Um, No one appears on Radio Spile unless I've known them personally and this is really where it gets about people adding value to the program on a suitable subject Uh, we don't do ad breaks Uh, an interviewer I work with my guest Uh, we give them as much time as they need and you'll find that you know in podcasts that we do here for Radio Aspile Every episode, it could be half an hour, it could be an hour, it could be two hours. You'll find today it's going to be quite a lengthy um, episode. But that's that's pretty much how we roll. Um, I want to also um, emphasize that when we have a guest on, they're going to express opinions views about what we're talking about the 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 subject in hand and I, I want to emphasize to people that you know look we have a disclaimer on our website uh radio spell website it doesn't always mean that um a guest or that I share necessarily the views or radio spoil shares the views of that guest um that's just the way it goes we talk and we discuss and we explore um let me move forward and talk a little bit about our subject today it's a subject we did touch on in our previous podcast uh with jeff wise i want to touch on more subjects today that we probably didn't get into too much uh, with Jeff uh, and their wider aviation subjects and there, there are also other areas I wanted to explore uh, regarding our, our team today. So let's look at our team today. It's it, This podcast is kind of a, a follow-up to our first podcast and I kind of, 
I kind of hope this is uh, some degree of fullness and completion. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 uh, was a scheduled international passenger flight that disappeared on the 8th of March 2014 while flying from Kuala Lumpur International Airport, Malaysia to Beijing Capital International Airport in China. The aircraft was a Boeing uh, 777-200ER operated by Malaysia Airlines. It last made ACT contact over the South China Sea shortly before entering Vietnam airspace. And 40 minutes after takeoff, uh, Malaysia military radar continued to track the aircraft, or so it's claimed. We have discussed that on previous podcasts and this podcast as it deviated westwards from its planned flight to Beijing and crossed back over the Malaysia uh, Peninsula. It left the range of Malaysia military radar at 2.22 a.m. northwest local time of Penang in the northwest area. The aircraft was carrying 12 Malaysian crew members and 227 passengers from 15 nations. There has been a multinational search uh, effort to find that uh, aircraft. This happened in 2014. We are now in 2017. Uh, currently, the official seabed search for the aircraft and where it went down is currently on hold. Um, look, if you've followed the podcast and, and followed the whole story of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, I'm not going to go into too much more detail. Uh, you can refer to our, our, our first podcast where we go into much, much uh, more detail. Um, the most important thing, I think, today is to get on to our guest, who will be joining us shortly. Who's our guest? James Nixon. James Nixon started his career running a small business and working as a freelance writer and photographer. He's studied radio, acting and management. At the age of 26, he started flying and had a career in general aviation, flying all manner of aircraft. He then joined airlines and he's flown Metroliners, uh, Saab 340s, Boeing 737s, <laughs> we all remember them, and the whole Airbus family, uh, 320s, 330s, 340s and 380s. Uh, he ended his career with 380s. He started flying the uh, A380 in September. September 2008 and finished as a 380 captain in September 2016. He's worked as an airline pilot in many, many hosts of countries, Australia, Malta, England, uh, Vietnam, Bahrain and Dubai. And he's represented many airlines uh, and he's also uh, been part of uh, pilot committees and management projects in the aviation field. After 31 years and 18,000 hours of flying, uh, he's very much retired to a writer's life. He has written some books. Uh, many of my guests uh, you will find that have appeared in the media field or have written books. Uh, 
James's first book was called On Tour Travels with an Airline Pilot and that came out in 20 sorry uh, uh 2009 and features uh 1450 of his photographs he's very much a keen photographer as well it's a common thing i find with pilots his second book was a memoir of an incident that happened uh while he was flying uh with his crew in 2016 he released sleeping with pilots and cabin crew and other insomniacs uh which uh became kindle bestsellers in fact both of his books have become kindle bestsellers uh he's also published the uh, more recently the crash of uh, mh370 uh this was released this year early this year and this also reached uh, bestseller status on kindle um he has just released this as a paperback um, he was one of the very few first podcasters with a regular spot on iRadio Max in 2007 and this year he's also decided to enter the podcasting field with um, a, a show called the Nixon Tapes so without further ado let's talk to James Mr. James Nixon. Okay, welcome back to Radio Spile, and I'm delighted to be joined on the line uh, from Australia, Melbourne, Australia, by Captain James Nixon, or retired Captain James Nixon, I should say. How are you, James? G'day, Mick. Yes, I am retired, and I've got to tell you, retirement is fantastic. Is it? Is it? Oh, it's fantastic. (laughs) You get to sleep in your own bed every night and you sleep when the sun goes down and then you wake up when the sun comes up it's a, a, a concept after 31 years it's a concept that i'm just just getting used just to just getting used to just getting used to it. i often wonder um is it sort of you know when people come up to that stage of retirement uh is it this is it the same for everybody in certain careers uh, you know it, it, whether you're uh a doctor, uh, an engineer, uh, your uh, a retail manager, or whatever you think, you know, is is it somehow different? Um, I don't know. I suppose we can often romanticise a little bit about uh, aviation, but it, it it sounds like you know you're very much enjoying uh, the idea of retirement. Yes, look, uh, look. There's nothing more exciting than takeoff and landing the A380. It's the uh, Mount Everest of aviation, and a lot of my friends have been saying, "Listen, are you going to get yourself a light plane and go flying?" I said, "Are you serious? Like, do you see uh, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing didn't go and climb uh, a small hill west of Victor- in Western Victoria after they retired? Uh, they never went back up a mountain again." And that's the same with the A380. It was uh, the most exciting aeroplane in the world to fly and had a fantastic time. But um, it's a long time when you're flying for 17 hours over the North Pole. And uh, my last trip over the North Pole, I had 10 medical cases, six of who we had to call meddling for. You know, and it gets to be a very stressful job. Um, I, I suppose that there, there's the natural question. You, you, you still sound in 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 heart and mind a sort of a, a young dashing man. Um, so uh, there, there's an obvious question. You know, uh, 
what, what you know, there comes a time, you know, in every, I suppose, every person's life where they, you know, they think about retirement and, and when it comes up, not that we're going to keep labouring this retirement thing now, um, but I suppose, you know, the, 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 there's that natural question, I suppose, I, I, I have to ask, you know, was it your decision? Did you just decide, no, the time has come? Um, yeah, it, did, did it, it was my... I planned it for two years uh, beforehand, uh, and it just so happened two two of my mates died from deep vein thrombosis. Um, one was uh, a guy who I'd uh, done a lot of flying on the A380 with, and um, he died uh, at work in New York. And uh, another was a friend of mine who we started flying together, and he was seven years younger than me, and he um, he had a heart attack and died as well. And so. I thought, well, like, we used to retire from this industry at 55, and uh, now it's 65, and in, in Australia you can go forever. There's Qantas pilots who are in their 70s, uh, or approaching 70, um, as long as you don't fly overseas, so they fly domestically, and they have to have someone sitting beside them who is, uh, uh, I believe, less than 60. <coughs> Excuse me. Sure. And so... Um, I thought, look, you know, we used to retire early in this game and uh, I think maybe we should let the FOs have a chance to be captains and if everyone uh, moved on as we used to, then maybe we'll keep our health and maybe the young guys will get uh, their commands rather than having to sit and wait for old blokes to die. So I planned it for two years and um, my plan was to write 23 books and after I retired, my sister uh, got on at me to uh, address the ca- the crash of MH370. So that's now 24 books. And you're where are we now? I think you're 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 sort of on that list of aspiring to to write uh, 24 books. I think you're you're four books in now. The crash of MH370 was it was the fourth book, isn't it? Yes, it's number four. The last one was Sleeping for Pilots and Cabin Crew and Other Insomniacs. And that was because I was sick of sitting next to people in the cockpit and also having cabin crew who just could not get a handle on sleeping. And uh, in long-haul flying, if you don't get a handle on sleeping in this business, you cannot do it for a very long time. Right. So uh, I put all my thoughts together, mainly stuff that I'd learned from the old flight engineers and the 727s because those guys had tons of experience they'd had 20 years in the hangar doing night shift before we started flying as flight engineers so or before they started flying with us and uh, so they taught us all the trips the the uh, tricks and tips to survive um long-haul flights sleeping and also to how to sleep in hotel rooms during the daytime which is a real part of the job and so that ended up in a book that became a Kindle bestseller and it's done very well for me. And uh, this one was, um, came out of the blue. So the 23 books to go didn't include the crash of MH370. That was just something my sister came up with because uh, I had no idea that uh, people were so affected by um, members of the general public saying bad things about the pilots. Of course, uh, as a pilot, uh, we all sort of have the same idea and we talk about it amongst ourselves, but we didn't realise that the public was being bombarded with this uh, absolute tripe, which was upsetting people who uh, were sisters and relatives of pilots who thought, well, if you know my brother went missing, they'd be saying the same thing about him. Right, and, and it's, it's, you know, that's probably the, the most poignant thing, you know, you write uh, at the, the start of, of this book, The Crash of uh, MH370, is that you, you wrote it on the insistence of your uh, sister, uh, and you say, you know, 
who she realised that, you know, that you uh, could easily have been, you know, in the place of uh, Captain uh, Shah. And, uh, you know, you've you had a similar amount of experience, I think 18,000 flying hours. You know, so it could have been you as much as anybody. Um, I suppose just as much as uh, when we reflect on the other uh, major um, Malaysia Airlines uh, accident, the, the downing of MH17 in the Ukraine, again, you know, uh, well, we won't go into that too much, but again, there was a flight that was on a main flight corridor, and it could have been any of those aircraft that afternoon, you know, oh, on that, going look, through that uh, flight, whether it was Emirates or... or, or well, there was a there was a Singapore A380 yeah. and a Qantas A380 either side of it, and uh, and I'm not too sure on the actual who was in front or who was behind. Uh, we had one aeroplane that was going up to the Ukraine, and uh, you know, and luckily our CEO uh, Tim Clark he treated it as if it was uh, one of our aeroplanes. Like he was he was he took a lead worldwide uh, on IATA on IATA and also demanding that our KO do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, could have happened to anyone. Yeah. Obviously, our um, main subject today is um, uh, Malaysia Airlines uh, flight uh, MH370. Uh, I suppose probably let's 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 move uh, to that now. Um, I know you listened to uh, the last um, podcast uh, with Jeff Wise. Um, I'm. I, I'd like to pretty much start out with a similar question because, I, I, you know, with these situations, um, we, we all reflect back, you know, on that moment where we, and for me as a, an investigation journalist and being into aviation, you know, we all reflect back on that moment when we heard about this and we started to get more and more involved uh, in the case. So, you know, the, that inevitable question, um, how, how did you find out about this and, and what were your, your initial thoughts? Because you did have some very early thoughts on it, but just on the initial day of, of March 8th, um, how, how did you find out about this? Did, did something strike you was different? Uh, yes, well, I'd just uh, done an all-nighter uh, to... Because um, you, you, know, you, you were still working as an airline pilot back in 2020. Oh yes, I was a cap, I was a captain on the 3:30 yeah. that night, and I landed back into um, Dubai, and uh, just about to go to bed, and checked the the uh, Twitter feed or the news feed. I can't remember what it was, but I I uh, heard that they'd lost the the airplane, and uh, so it would have probably been about maybe eight o'clock in the morning in Dubai. So it had just become news, and I I was going to sleep, and so I just put a post on uh, Facebook uh, and Twitter, saying, you know, how can you lose a triple seven? And um, and knowing that how aircraft are followed by uh, ETOPS, you know, if you've got an ETOPS aircraft, it requires flight following, uh, something that when you're in the four engine airplanes like the A340 and the A380. Uh, you sort of feel a bit uh, miffed because the, the, the two-engine guys are always being flight-followed every second of the way. <laughs> and so I thought, well, you know, they know where they, you know, they'll find this by the time I wake up. And so I just made a flippant remark, you know, how do you, how do you lose a 777? And then went to bed. And when I woke up, phew, all hell had broken loose. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah. and, and and that's the thing, isn't it? That they they still hadn't found it, and yet, cruelly, here we are, more than three years later, and they still haven't essentially found it, or, or the 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 wreckage of, well, I, of the. You know, I I was uh, I joined uh, Emirates in two thousand and six. And a friend of mine was working in uh, crewing. Uh, he'd worked with me in Australia. And uh, he's on night shift one night, and I uh, wanted to learn about the airline, so I went to the engineering office uh, on the eastern side of the airport, and um, uh, the northern side of the airport. And then he showed me the VPNC and how they all work. And, you know, as soon as a plane turns on a transponder in in Australia, it's up on the big screen, and they know where every single airplane is all the time. That was 2006, so I just assumed all uh, wide-body airliners had that sort of type of uh, flight following. And um, as soon as one of those little transponders turned off in mid-flight, you would think that you know bells would start ringing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the in our last podcast again. In this podcast, I'm not going to go into as much deep uh, detail as 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 we did about you know um, satellites and and communication, but we well, did, we did we did broadly touch on this in in the last episode regarding subscription and you know some of the reasons why and how a plane could have got lost and not. Uh, I, I suppose what you're touching upon really is that initial question of um, in Malaysia. You know when that red flag started and the transponder went out. Why the hell? Well, didn't thank, they thank get... you for saying that, Mick. Thank, thanks for saying went out. Because listen, I'm so sick and tired yeah. of listening to people like your previous guest yeah. who said um, it was turned off. Yeah, that's crap. This transponder stopped transponding. Okay, absolutely. We have no idea why that happened. So people are loose with the truth when they say it was turned off. You can't turn off a transponder when you're flying in the sky. And, and it just shows that none of these clowns who are getting a, uh, the, the, the public voice have never flown wide-bodied jet airliners. And it just made us go crazy having to sit there and listen to this crap on what we thought were uh, good news services mm-hmm. being every day being sprouted. You know, the pilots turned off the communications. That's the first thing. And it just, from there on, it just gets worse. Just, I suppose, let's, let's move a, a little bit into your theory. Um, of, of course, uh, this, um, this whole investigation, this whole case of, of um, MH370 has been absolutely blighted by so many crazy conspiracy theories uh, and of course you've worked uh, in the media I've worked in the media and, and the problem inevitably is the worst thing you can have in the media is an information vacuum because either somebody, some pundit and talking head in the media will fill that vacuum with crap uh, or the natural instinct is people just start talking amongst themselves and all sorts of misnomers oh, look, and, and look, misinformation begins. Sorry, go ahead. We've, we've all done that. And as uh, Juno is sitting around dinner instinct. parties and stuff, you know, that's, it, that's what you do. But listen, when I was in the media before I started flying, uh, there were things called editors. 
and editors were uh, they just chucked out every you know they spiked every second story that that people put up because they would demand that you go back to the source and check your facts and get them three times to check the facts mm -hmm. and nothing would go to air unless it was real and since I've been flying for 31 years uh, editors have stopped editing and stuff gets to air that just has absolutely no basis of fact absolutely absolutely just let's let's move more towards um the book you wrote the crash of mh370 and a little bit into uh your theory behind it it's it's like every okay man woman well dog in the street you know appears to have a, a theory but okay I, well I, let I, me go through it i i tend to be a person that while i'm willing to listen to someone's thoughts and theories the ones i most respect are from people who know about what they're talking about and unfortunately we hear too many people who have no clue of what they're talking about and start out with theories with with laced with multiple errors or problems you know uh, have a theory based upon a foundation of crap uh, ultimately hmm. So that's why I start when I started the book, I go through and I, I talk about the known facts. And this is the, the facts that we do know what happened and the, the timeline in which these things happened. And then I identify and look at the pilots because that's everyone wants to know about them. And then I look at uh, the other players in the game because you hear all these acronyms about AMSA and ATSB and, and all these different names of people. And so it takes a bit of understanding and also to understand ICAO and IATA and how the crash investigation system works worldwide and, and why uh, airline managers uh, stay still when you think they should be saying nice things or platitudes in the media. They're not allowed to because they immediately go into this uh, system, which is they've all signed up to with RKO and also IATA. So that there's a chapter that explains who the, who those people are and how it happens. Exactly, and, and I, sh I should just if I'll just interject that, um, you know, you you've referenced previously in the media when you've talked about your book. This was a book that you couldn't have written as an employed um, airline captain. That's right. No airline pilot, no air traffic controller, no no engineer on the ground or in flight, uh, no one in the industry at all can talk publicly about anything. And we signed confidentiality agreements. And you've got to do this. I mean, you could just imagine what would happen. Uh, the airline I worked for had 4,100 pilots and 21,000 cabin crew. Uh, and they're small compared to American Airlines and United. So you could just imagine what would happen if you have a crash and people get on the radio and the TV and what it does to the parents and families and friends of these poor victims. So it's a pretty good idea that everyone has to remain silent. But... Uh, and so I've retired, so I can now say my bit. But what I'm really doing in most of my book is explaining to people who have no idea how the system works, how the system works. Mm -hmm. And so we go through and we explain who the players are, and then we look at the flight in more detail and bring into stuff 
that we've found out afterwards about the um, satellites and how the radars work and all the all the nitty gritty of the stuff covered in the first chapter, the known facts, and giving a full background analysis for everybody so they can understand uh, what the aeroplane did. And then we go through the scenarios, what could have happened. And uh, first up, we address the nutters. And my God, there's a lot of nutters. <laughs> and for some of the best ones have got my email address. And it, I, they, I think they go out smoking I'm, I'm, dope yeah. or doing something until four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and, and then they decide. <laughs> and then they send me emails at four o'clock in the morning after they get home. Do, do, do you really think that it was taken by a UFO? I mean, really. Crikey. My, my latest one is Space Junk. I'm going to tell everyone it was taken by Space oh, Junk. Oh, Space Junk. Uh, uh, and the other one I think was, uh, it was um, hit by a meteorite. Well, you know. Um, uh, which and, is probably more plausible than uh, uh, yeah. Don Lemon's uh, black hole. Well, look, Kazakhstan. I rest my case. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, it, I, don't, I don't, don't know if there's a pilot who's that clever flying in the sky that can tell you when they cross over NFIR boundary. I mean, you know, we're doing six miles a minute and, and these boundaries are wishing past like the sound of deadlines in, 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 a, in a press room. You know, these, to say that uh, the pilots actually know when they're crossing NFIR boundary, it happens so fast. Um, and one of the people who you've spoken to reckons that someone, told, a navigator, told him you can you can fly around the world in between FIR boundaries and no one sees you. Well, yeah. I've got to tell you, mate, when you cross over between India and Pakistan, which is the second most contested border in the world, mm -hmm. and you're flying anything from a kite to a drone to an airplane, you do not cross over that border without telling people 10 minutes advance your call sign and, and your score code and getting permission to do so. And, and they aren't straight lines, uh, these countries that we fly over, they're all ragged. And the FIR boundaries are straight lines. So, and quite often they don't actually have anything to do with the area that the, uh, the geographical uh, border of the country. For example, uh, they, they were the corner that uh, MH370 turned onto before it just before it vanished uh, was actually in Singapore's airspace, yeah, this, and this Singapore been, had gifted it to off, uh, off Sumatra. Yeah, the, the yeah, story, yeah, story, yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a tiny little piece of Singaporean airspace. What, what's it doing there? You know, if you look at the Australian uh, AMSA boundary, the the, the uh, FIR boundary for Australia, it, you go into it a few minutes after you've passed uh, Sri Lanka and the Maldives when you're coming into Australia. You know, and so uh, really to say that aeroplanes fly along borders and they cross them without being um, without prior notice is quite amusing because that's what air forces are for, Nick. You know, they're designed to stop planes flying over their borders without permission. And so, sure, some horrible stuff happened to MH370 flying around the uh, Straits of Malacca, but there's no way in the world that plane would have crossed over between India and Pakistan. Moving into your your theory, but but perhaps let let's just touch upon what we're talking about there, and let me get your your thoughts there. Again, for this episode, I'm not going to go heavily back over the 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 full ins and outs of we discussed that in quite quite a, a lot of detail in the past program. We know the aircraft turned for whatever reason to perform what's called a, a turn back. Now, generally, when 
an aircraft performs a turn back, um, you know, there, there could be reasons why that happened. We, we believe, if, if we go on the available evidence that's been presented so far in the case after three years, that it flew back over the, um, the Malay Peninsula uh, towards an area on the west side uh, called Penang or Penang Island, I think it's just slightly off uh, the west coast. Um, it performed, we believe, another turn and started to travel, I think, northeast upwards uh, through the... Northwest. No, excuse me, northwest through the Malacca uh, Straits. And ultimately, the, the infamous final turn, um, then it, it essentially flew down south, right down into the, the, the southern Indian Ocean. Just on communications... I was watching what might have been happening at that time uh, in in Malaysia and the surrounding countries. So so let's ju let's just talk a little bit about what not what was necessarily going on within the aircraft, but I was watching. Okay, well, there's a lot of air traffic controllers using single uh, SSR radar, um, secondary radar, surveillance yeah. radar, which is which is a bit of a misnomer because it's now really the primary one it's the one we use it's the number one we use but because it came along second it's called secondary radar and primary radar is um, what secondary radar is replaced and you've got to turn your screen up you've got to uh, to get primary radar it's difficult and no one uses it but the military does and so on the night as soon as MH370 went off secondary radar it became invisible and so eyes watching, um, well, obviously the Malaysian military, uh, because they didn't find it on their primary radars until after the event, obviously no one was watching primary radar, and why would they? You know, one o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning, um, who would do that? Um, you know, Air Forces finished training on Friday afternoon, They all, and, and, well, uh, uh, Malaysia is a Muslim country, so they probably had Friday off. But you know, in Western countries, all the all the flyboys are finished by five o'clock on Friday afternoon, mm -hmm. and they don't come back till Monday. So, unless they've got a reason for being, and, and any uh, uncertainty phase or a distress phase, or you know, someone's called them out, you can't expect these guys at one o'clock in the morning to be looking for things unless. They're paranoid, and they are paranoid between India and Pakistan and between North and South Korea and a few other countries in the world, but most of the world just sort of rocks on uh, nice and quietly. But before, because right in the minds of all of our listeners right now, they're, they're, they're trying to work out what could have happened. Mm -hmm. So let me just knock sure. over a few sure. things. The theories, there are the nutter theories, and we look at those, and dispel them. But the theories that it could have had is a bomb or explosive decompression. And uh, we know this airplane's in the Indian Ocean. We know that because we've found three confirmed pieces of it and 26 pieces in six separate countries. Mm -hmm. And so from Tanzania all the way down to South Africa. And so we know the plane ended up in the Indian Ocean. That's a, a, a certainty. And so if it was a bomb... Uh, over the uh, the, Thailand, the Sea of Thailand on the border of the, China, the South China Sea. That's where we find out. Then, 
we'd find debris. And we'd find debris if it was an accidental shoot down or a bomb or mid-air collision uh, or a loss of control in flight. Um, and that's where you'd expect the wreckage. And if it was a lithium battery fire similar to UPS-6, uh, the the uh, 747 cargo flight out of uh, Dubai, um, you know, this plane would not have get, kept flying for very long. So you can rule out bomb explosive decompression. Explosive decompression is one of our party tricks. Uh, Mick, you know, it's the sort of thing that we do every week, every time in the sim, and pilots love doing it because you get to fly the aeroplane. You know, it's one of the things where you get to put your mask on and you can do this raging rapid descent and you get really good at it in your training and in 31 years, you know, every year you do it at least once or twice and uh, you usually do two times. Uh, one pilot, like the captain, might do explosive decompression with damage, in which case your first thing is to limit the speed to what it is now and then go down with damage. And the other, then you go back up and do it again. The first officer will do it and he'll do it with no damage, in which case you want to stick the nose forward and speed up the aeroplane. So explosive decompression is one of our party tricks and it doesn't take out aeroplanes. It, it did take out a 737, a Cypress Air 737, but it doesn't take out new aeroplanes and it sure as hell doesn't take out 777s because when the decompression happens, the 777's got a magical device that it closes the outflow valves when the cabin altitude climbs. So it's not going to do a, a Cypress Air. Just... I just you've reminded me of something in your book as well that I want to touch on and it's it's you know it's it's one of those things that it's a very small detail and this moves a little bit closer now to your theory it's a very small detail but too many theorists that have put forward ideas theories of what they think happen miss this very subtle part of uh a checklist that pilots will will run through in the event of smoke in the cockpit uh, or an odor in the cockpit where they become suspicious of something and it, it's that uh, I want you to talk a little bit about this this procedure because you do in the book all right well can I do can we just get to it in, in order so that we yeah, don't sure, confuse sure, people sure. okay so we've talked about bomb explosive decompression accidental shoot down which is a possibility when you're going into a country that are not expecting you but the Vietnamese were expecting them and that's not an issue mid-air collision well we know that didn't happen because there was no one else to hit in the debris uh, hijack uh, and hypoxia well uh, in all cases, with hijacking, there's always a backstory, and always someone somewhere says something. Yeah. There's a claim, and so we can write that out. Uh, hypoxia, it's a very inefficient way to kill people, uh, and so and I can go into that in my book. Uh, loss of control in flight. Now, this thing is a, a problem in the airlines today with overspeeds, airliners, and people's mishandling of overspeeds. Um, but that didn't happen in this situation because the wreckage was not where the plane went missing. Suicide, we go into that in the book. I don't believe it was suicide because in each suicide case in the world to date, there's been a backstory and there's been no backstory in any person on the crew. And now they've probably checked all the passengers as well. Uh, Mick Gilbert came up with a, a great one from Multiple Failures uh, where he's talking about... Uh, Basically, everything that's ever happened to a triple seven on the ground uh, happened to this one in flight. And quite frankly, you've got to understand when you fly this 
airplane, any airplanes on a daily basis. The airplane on the ground is a totally different beast to the one in the air. There's all different things that happen when the airplane pressurizes and the most important one is the air is uh, expelled every three minutes off the airplane uh, out of the cockpit and so uh, you know you had to take that into account if you're going to look at his elaborate theory for uh, multiple failures and quite frankly uh, Mick, no one ever has uh, multiple failures in this business. It's usually only one failure and that's you know a lot of things leading up to one failure but the chances of a lot of things leading up to one failure and a lot of things leading up to another failure at the same time in space at the same moment are so real, unrealistic. They don't even, they don't even certify planes for that anymore um, because you know, we, have, we have proof of uh, these airplanes are much better than people think they are and usually it only takes one thing to make one crash. So multiple failures aren't really an issue. Lithium battery fire, uh, because the plane got out of Malaysia's airspace, I contend that uh, it wasn't a, a massive lithium battery fire in the, in the same way that UPS-6 went down. But I'm thinking that the pilots were, and this is my theory, is that the pilots were disabled by toxic smoke or fumes. Now, this happens every day, well, disabling doesn't, but toxic smoke and fumes is the number one thing that happen on airplanes every day in the world. And there's about 2,000. Uh, events every day worldwide. There's about 1,300 events in the United Kingdom and, and the United States every day, fumes and smoke events. And there's always about 30 to 60 pilots in the, in the United Kingdom who are off because they're uh, being medically looked after. It's a real issue. It's a real issue in this industry and, and my book explains why it's, uh, it's even more insidious than that because the Manchester crash in 1985 uh, with a fire um, at Manchester Airport and also uh, in 1980 the uh, Lockheed TriStar at Saudi Arabia's Riyadh Airport. Um, as a result of these crashes we now have fire blocking. So all the cabin items are now fire blocked. The carpets, the curtains, the seats. Pretty much everything's fire blocked. So we've now got a whole generation or two of people who work in airlines who have never experienced the horror and shock and terror that used to occur with smoke, fire and fumes. So that it's a very, very, it's a regular event that rarely does the, the cabin catch fire. And so we're very good at handling these events and there's checklists to do it and there's um, procedures and all the cabin crew pilots are checked every year and every airline has a fantastic uh, training system to train them in fire fighting and to uh, to test the pilots and cabin crew and unfortunately the public doesn't get to see that because it's it's not uh, the airlines don't like the idea of the passengers seeing what happens when there's a massive fire that the cabin crew have to put out but they do it in the uh, cabin trainers every year and uh, so it's not really an issue but toxic smoke is an issue and we've seen that recently in this tower fire in London and it happens every yeah and it happens every every uh, two or three years certainly every decade there is a huge one but and it's been happening since 1928 or something uh, nightclub fires 
Uh, nightclub fires are really, really common, and they kill a lot of people. And uh, the last one that uh, the one I use in my book as a reference, because purely because we've got a lot of information about it, because it happened in Long Island, um, was the station nightclub fire in 2003, where a hundred people were killed in less than six minutes from the time the fire started. So toxic smoke is a real killer, because it does two things: the uh, the carbon monoxide takes the oxygen out of the air and the cyanide kills you. And when you breathe toxic smoke, you can be still sitting in your seat uh, and conscious but incapable of movement, very similar to hypoxia, where you could still be conscious but uh, incapable of saving yourself. So it, it's my contention and the contention of most pilots I know that uh, they've had some sort of massive fume smoke event uh, which has disabled them very very quickly and they've done the right thing uh, in that situation and the book goes into it uh, how the cabin the, the cockpit splits and the, the captain starts flying the airplane and the first officer his job is to put the fire out or put out the uh, smoke and fumes and, and reconfigure the valves and the systems to to make the plane safe so I'm, I'm contending that Captain Shah uh, started turning back to Penang and the first officer was doing his bit but uh, the smokers overwhelmed them before they've started the descent. And one thing, that the big thing that I'm saying that nobody else says and nobody's addressing it because it's just too hard and that is I'm saying pilots do or the pilots in this case do what every other pilot in the world does in the same situation but the investigators don't even examine it because it's too hard to deal with and that is I think the autopilot was disconnected it's what pilots do when they want to do a, a very quick U-turn because when you do it on the when you do it on the autopilot it takes too long and pilots in an emergency situation like this always want to feel in control of the airplane and of course, we have not enough not enough evidence, but we do have evidence from UPS six, and that's exactly what that captain did, and that's what we see in the simulator all the time. Is in a situation like this, you disconnect the autopilot, turn the airplane, and then start a descent. And I think they've been disabled before they even got to do the descent. And, that, and that's a significant part of your theory. Uh, I know I've read many, many theories, and. What struck me as significant about that point you bring up about the autopilot is most of the theories presented, and, and when I say most of the theories presented, uh, let's 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 qualify that by saying most of the sensible, reasonably sensible theories uh, presented um, when they discuss uh, the aircraft, most of them tend to go along the lines that no, the, the autopilot was engaged. So I just want to want you to talk a little bit about that because it's significant in the uh, Australian uh, Transport and Safety Board, the ATSB, they, they sort of have a, their own, if you like, their own working theory, working scenario that, that, that deals specifically with what we would call the EOF, the, the end of flight. My understanding is that their theory is based upon until that time, the just before the aircraft impacted the sea in the southern Indian Ocean, the autopilot, their theory based on, is that it was still engaged. 
So just talk to me a little bit about um, the difference and the behavior and the situation in that aircraft if the autopilot was disengaged to perform a rapid turnback. Yeah, okay, well, um, if you, and, and all, the, all the, the data from the ATSB has been predicated on them interviewing a few 777 pilots and they said, you know, what auto flight modes, what auto flight modes would you use and how are they used? That was how they examined them. But they didn't bother to interview uh, a thousand 777 captains and say, you know, or pilots and say, you know, given a scenario, what do you reckon happens? And, and they would have got some good information if they'd actually asked pilots worldwide, you know, what do you think people do in an emergency? And if they had asked examiners, you know, what do you see in various scenarios? Okay, so I'm contending the autopilot was off because that's what we do when we turn back to land the plane in a hurry. Uh, after UPS 6, we, uh, uh, all of us around the world, we all did... Um, handling sims uh, so every year you do two types of sims uh, you do a ppc which is the, the proficiency check which gets you your license back and you do that every six months and then it is dispersed amongst them every other six months you're doing a handling sim uh, in expensive airlines you're doing a handling sim where you go and you do different types of scenarios and to become, and it's all flown without autopilot it's all flown without uh, uh, auto thrust and it's just to get your hands and eyes back into scanning the airplane and, and flying like a real pilot and uh, so after UPS 6 uh, we all got put in the same location, the same altitude, everything was the same, and the fire started exactly the same. And uh, and you could have either turned left and gone to Doha, or you could have gone straight ahead to Bahrain, or you could have done a U-turn and gone back to Dubai. And uh, everybody I know disconnected the autopilot and, uh, and did a dirty dive and went straight in either to Doha or Bahrain. And, um, and flew like a fighter pilot because when you're in a situation like this you've got to get with the program very quickly and you've got to realise that you've got to be the fastest guy in the world to about 20 miles and then you can slow up because you want to be actually s sitting on the ground parked watching the fireys put it out um, because you, know, you want to be on the ground you don't want to be flying and so I think this aeroplane they did, did the turn and got disabled and now the aeroplane's flying all by itself and pilots of small planes and pilots of uh, smaller planes find it hard to believe that these large airliners if you take an autopilot off absolutely nothing happens they just keep rocking on they've got so much inertia and so much weight and they've got so much stability built into them designed into them that they just rock and roll all the time and they just sit there do nothing and so if you contend that that plane uh, was at that location when it turned and we know where it was and then we know where it crashed pretty much. So how did it get there? And when we talk about, you know, it did a turn, well, it might have done five little turns. It might have done 25 little turns to turn on the southerly heading because we don't know. We don't have any data. When we're talking about primary radar, we're talking about uh, it's a VHF, line of sight, and we have a formula for line of sight, um, which is, I think, 1.265 times the square root of the altitude in feet equals nautical miles. So when you start looking at radar traces from primary radar at the 
end of propagation, you'd be very hard pressed to get very accurate information. Uh, so we actually don't have really big slabs of this primary radar data. It comes and goes if you look at the, the information that's been released. And so after that plane's now heading southwest, it's made a few turns. It may have made a lot of turns. We don't know. But it has ended up in the South, Southern Ocean and uh, in, in the South Indian Ocean. And how it's got there is... Uh, if it's got there because the airplane had good stability and it was just flying all by itself, the end of flight scenario is where people say, oh yeah, but what happens when an engine fails? Well, it just so happens that we're talking about a 777 here and a 777 has tech, I think it's called thrust asymmetry compensation, which if you lose an engine in a 777 before the, without the autopilot connected, the airplane helps you keep the airplane straight. And it would have done that too in the cruise. And so the thrust asymmetry would have worked even if there was no autopilot connected to it. So once the first engine ran out of fuel, the right engine ran out of fuel, we know that because it was using more than the left, then the TAC would have worked and the airplane would have kept flying straight and level and then the second engine's run out of fuel and then she's just fallen out of the sky. Let's just deal with... Well, you, you've gone right down to the the, the final, the, the, the EOF, the, the end of flight. But I just want to touch on one thing prior to that because everybody, when they talk about you know um, uh, toxic fumes in the cockpit, the first pe thing people will say is, "But but don't they put their um, their oxygen masks on immediately?" And you touch upon an important point in the book, and it's something that many of the theories I think miss. There's a very important phrase in the procedures that comes when don, you know, oxygen masks, brackets, if required. And you explain a little bit about this in your book and, and how pilots deal with that and, you know, that, that procedure. Can you just, just go through a little bit of that? Yes, well... Possibly how, how pilots end up becoming incapacitated. Yeah, well, this is, this is an issue that we have, and it's a big issue. I mean, this whole checklist, and it's one of the 13 recommend, in, urgent industry recommendations that I make, and it's number one, is this smoke, fire, and fumes checklist. It is all ass about. It does not work. NASA put a, a, a working group together, and a whole heap of people sat around for weeks and months and had meetings and held happy clappers and held hands and came up with the, uh, the ideal smoke, fire, and fumes removal checklist. And... It's, it's a dog's breakfast, really. And so what happens is you've got the most junior person in the airline, a, paid, you know, a cadet most likely in the right-hand seat of this airplane or a, 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 a junior pilot, and the captain's offline the airplane. And I've got to tell you, when you're doing that, you're not thinking of anything else. You're just assuming that the guy's working the checklist right and he's yelling stuff out to you what he's doing. But, you know, most of the time you're worried about flying the airplane and doing the communication because that's what the, the pilot flying is doing at the same time. And so this guy's working this checklist and it says, uh, put your masks on if required. Well, most of these smoke events and fumes events, they're not in the cockpit. Most of them are in the cargo compartment. Most are in the toilets when people use hairspray. Most of them are in the cabin, in the galleys where people 
you know, chuck a, uh, something in the in the galley and turn it on, not realizing there's a liner inside the oven that uh, hasn't been taken out first. And these things, are, or it's an IFE system at a, pa- a passenger's seat, or someone's um, dropped their iPhone down their seat in business class and gone, oh, gee, look, my phone's down there, and rather than do what the cabin crew says, which is don't touch anything, uh, the pa- passenger moves the seat back and squashes the phone, and now it's making buckets of smoke. So... There's no need for the pilots at this stage to put their masks on because it's a communication exercise. So in this situation, this situation is different. This situation that the captain usually hands over everything, the aeroplane and the, the uh, radio and navigation to the first officer and say, fly the aeroplane. Mick, I'm going to be talking to the person and finding what the hell is going on back there. And then the captain just sits there and he's monitoring the uh, the first officer's actions and making sure he's flying all right, but he's on the intercom talking to the purser and finding what's what's going on. And in many cases, uh, the person who's fighting the fire, uh, there's a special procedure for this, and there's the person who notices the fire gets, you'll hear him scream out, back up, give me back up, I want back up. So, so there's now two people fighting the fire and the third person comes running up, picks up the nearest inner phone and is a communicator and they speak to the captain and they just keep becoming the eyes and ears of the captain so the, and saying exactly what's going on and what they can see. And sometimes the, the person hasn't, is not even in this conversation because the person's somewhere at the front of the airplane and this is happening in the back galley and the communicator's on the phone of the captain and the firefighters are doing their stuff and if they need more help or if they need to put their PBEs on or their smoke hoods, all that's done uh, while the captain's sitting there happily drinking his cup of tea talking on the radio, uh, talking on the interphone and the first officer's flying the whole airplane. So that's what that checklist refers to so you're not put don't you don't put your oxygen mask on for that because it's just uh it's a communication exercise and you don't want to put a mask on and ruin your communication because the first thing that these masks do is stop you from being able to speak clearly to your crew members yeah exactly they, they create quite a, a muffled uh, sound with with, with the, uh, the the mask on Yes, and it's quite a trick to actually turn the intercom off every time you're breathing in so that it doesn't come through on the microphone and then turn it back on, pause, turn it back on, talk, turn it off again, breathe out, breathe in, turn it back on again. And it's quite an art to to doing it right, and most people can't do it right. James, let's let's move on now a little bit. where are we now uh, with the investigation? Um, at the moment, the uh, search has, was suspended in December 2016 uh, to find the, the, the seabed uh, wreckage in the, in the southern Indian mm, Ocean. January, January, January the 17th it's, it's, this excuse, year. January the, the, the uh, 17th uh, this year. I know, because the book was about to be published. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I had to redo the whole thing. Yeah. Um, bringing us up to today because something interesting has happened in the last few days. Um, All right. David, All right. Well, what's happened? Okay. Well, okay. Keep. D- D- David David Griffin, um, who's part of uh, CSIRO, yep. who, who've worked upon all the the drift analysis. And when I say drift analysis, we're obviously we're referring to the. The, the 26 or whatever it is now uh, pieces of debris that has turned up in 
being examined. Um, yeah. Now, David Griffin now believes that they can give a far more precise location of the impact point of the aircraft. Um, I, I think initially we started out, uh, oh, we literally back three years ago, we were between the 32nd and 39th parallel uh, in that massive, massive uh, 120,000 square kilometer search box. I think it was then reduced down to the 36th to the 39th parallel. Dave Griffin of Cicero now believes that the aircraft is on somewhere very close to the 35th parallel. Uh, and I suppose that brings about the question, well, how, how the hell can he be so sure now, you know, after all this time, now suddenly you, you tell us this is where it actually is. Well, you've got to understand what's happening here, Mick, because we're, yeah. we're developing three types of science that have never been thought of before. Absolutely. And, and this is quite spectacular. In fact, each branch of this investigation deserves a movie to be made about it because uh, it really is quite spectacular. And so uh, what a good scientist does is they never give up and they just keep uh, refining and refining and what what uh, the guys at CSIRO have been lucky enough to get was a, a 777 flapper ROM a real one and then they uh, cut and shaped it so it was exactly the same as the one uh, that came from MH370 and then they chucked it in the sea and they wanted to see how it floated and how it rolled over and, and all the things that they said it might have done and it it, uh, what came out of that was him realising that their location is correct and they learn a little bit more about the way the flaperon performed but with the refining of the satellite data even more so and this uh, refining of this wave data, uh, the drift data, then we could pretty much say, they can pretty much say, it's on the 35 degrees south at the 7th arc, which is about 100, 120 kilometres north of where they stop searching. And they're saying that's surely enough for you to come out and have another look again. That's what we're up to. And so we're waiting for someone who's got enough uh, um, interest or money or both to make this happen. And in... In my recommendations at the end of my book, uh, I come up with a way so this will never happen again. And just on that, uh, the reason why the, 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 the 35th uh, degree parallel is so important is because early on, particularly in, after the July 2015, if I recall, when the flap run was found, and, and eventually then other debris uh, started to be found um, there was a lot of discussion as to well you know but, but the Australian coast is quite close why the hell are they not finding debris uh, on the Australian coast and what Griffin and his team at the CSIRO have finally figured out because they too were asking themselves the question yeah that's that's a fair question. Why 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 is debris not washing ashore on the western coast of Australia? And really, only with certainty, in 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 recent weeks, have they been able to say, okay, we figured this out because we've specifically looked at 
currents and the very currents at 35 degrees at that time would not have taken would oddly have not have taken debris and, and debris would in fact have went uh, northeast and I don't know whether I haven't talked to David Griffin um, I don't know whether for him it was kind of like that eureka moment uh, where they went now now we really are sure uh, we, we, you know we we know more precisely where it is well, he's a, he's a great uh, talent. He's, uh, I heard his fantastic interview in January um, on the Canadian uh, science show in uh, Radio Canada. And, you know, I'm sure you can get him on because he's a uh, good talent. However, I, you know, he may have been told to, to shut up because yeah. really, um, you know, I can't believe how, how he can be public and get away with it. But uh, he's saying, you know, let's, you know, we're ready to go back out. Do you think perhaps a part of him... And, and, you know, certainly when the ATSB involved his team in the early stages, uh, and I'm thinking right back to 2014, 2015, I certainly, you know, it, it's only really in the past 12 months I've heard his name. Um, well, he's part of, part of a pretty big team. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the Americans have been there too, and, and, and they've, they're all working in together. It's just that uh, he's down in Hobart in Tasmania, and he's, he's uh, I don't know if he's working by himself down yeah. there in collaboration with these guys, but he's, he's, uh, he's been pretty um, no, he, he's he's been tenacious very, he's, bugger, yeah, and I yeah, think you should get him been, on. He's been very, very vocal uh, in the past 12 months. And, you know, the point you're making is, you know... Um, you know, uh, has someone not come along and tell him, look, David, will you shut the hell up and stop giving so many... <laughs> well, and it, 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 uh, my own instinct tells me the reason why is because, as you say, he strikes me, I, I agree with you, as a very dedicated and tenacious man and has decided, no, I'm going to speak publicly because that might help put more and more pressure on the people who can make the decisions to go and search again. Yeah. So I, I think yeah. there's a degree of him playing, the, not playing the media, but being so vocal in the media to, to try and increase that pressure. Mm. Well, you've also got to congratulate the whole CSIRO, uh, the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organisation, because it is sort of uh, separately run by uh, from the government. And so guy, the guys actually do say a lot of stuff in the press that quite often uh, people don't want to hear. And uh, so he's obviously saying this with the... Um, uh, with his um, permission from his management team. So, you know, good on him, and I hope they get to say more. But, you know, let's not also forget uh, the Inmarsat guys have been doing more revision and more revision and deciding that uh, they're doing a... Uh, they've firmed up their situation, so that's made them realise that the, uh, that, that the last... Um, the seventh arc was a vertical one rather than a horizontal one, and the plane was crashing. One thing in the last um, episode of the program I didn't talk about, but I'd like to talk a little bit with you um, in the area of, you know, we've talked about the investigation itself. Obviously, with investigations like this, there there are two stages of it uh, that, that kind of work in parallel, although to a degree you have the technical investigation 
uh, and then you have the and really the, the technical aspect is looking at all the data you've got. Um, uh, later, we we hope one day the aircraft will be found, and and ultimately then the the technical uh, assessment then moves into physically examining you know the 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 the, the debris the the seabed debris. But there's also in, in league with that there is a criminal investigation that that goes on. But what I, I particularly want to move to and talk about that we didn't talk very much in the last uh, episode was, and God, your, your heart goes out to them, the families, and the situation mm. that they are placed in. Can you just talk to me a little bit about, you know, in, a, in an event, a dreadful event like this for the next of kin, you know, how an investigation works, uh, the, the rights they have. Uh, they're obviously in a desperate situation now where they they don't have any meaningful answers. They don't have their loved ones back. They still don't know what happened. Can, can you just talk a little bit in that area, if you, if you can? Um, mm, well, well, I would say, um, firstly, I, I have uh, uh, probably the only way a pilot can get through this is by thinking if it was toxic smoke it would have been very fast for everybody uh our malaysians and chinese uh well particularly chinese passengers they are well renowned for being asleep before you take off and so uh you know i, I don't know how many times i've flown to beijing and shanghai where you walk out of the flight deck and and, and it looks like there's been a mass murder because yeah. everyone's far, you know just just draped all over the place and um it's a cultural thing, uh, them and the Japanese, that they can put themselves to sleep in airplane seats and they just do it. It's incredible. Mm. And so I would think that most of the people would have been pretty close to asleep. And so then uh, I'm thinking toxic smoke, well, it's, it's not a bad way to go, really, uh, especially the cyanide because it's euphoric and, and um, you know, it's a, it's a way to go. And so... I don't think that they have to be uh, concerned about passengers being, um, you know, they're, they're inconvenienced. The suffering, the, 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 you know, mm. uh, last. So I think, it, no, I think it would have been very, uh, very quick and very final. Uh, you know, five breaths of this smoke and, uh, well, three breaths, most people, you know, can be dead, but five breaths and you are dead for sure. So it's not a matter of you being um, suffering for very long anyway. And so in terms of what happens next, um, I don't think people want to know what happens when you go in the water at uh, 25,000 feet per minute. But And, and to, sadly, the investigators haven't addressed it either. They've looked at plane crashes and the plane crashes they've looked at, uh, they've looked at ditching and that sort of stuff. Well, you know, I, I can, had a look at a lot, a lot of plane crashes and the ones I looked at that we can compare this with, uh, where we've got a lot of data and that's what I'm looking for is, you know, what, what's a, a trail that I can look at. And number one is Space Shuttle Challenger and number two is Swiss Air Triple uh, One of Halifax Nova Scotia. That's that's right. Yeah, and uh, th th that that flight experienced uh, an in-flight fire uh, from the the ceiling uh, units. Yeah, and that was that. That's a horrible crash report mm. to read, uh, but you know, um, all of us have read it. And and this is the thing about this industry is, you know, you just got to mention the name of a location, and every pilot 
knows. Mm. Uh, uh, every every journalist or wannabe might have a bit of an idea, but we've read every square inch of these reports, and they're pretty gruesome details. Now, this aeroplane only started going vertical from 9,800 9, feet, and so it went in straight down from 9,800 9, 9, feet, but it was so, sort of inverted, but almost. It was uh, upside down back, you know, um, on an angle. Now, it broke into 2 million That's right, pieces yeah. with 225 mile uh, kilometers of wire and they had 360 i think people in a big hangar going through every piece of debris and they got over two million pieces and i i when someone tells you two million you go yeah right oh crap you know yeah. and you know and and the great journo's response is like you know um prove it well they actually were two million pieces and many more probably and so that investigation is one of the most amazing pieces of work and Canada has to be congratulated because I've got to tell you, the stuff they came up with in the weather conditions, you know, and we discovered about pingers because they had submarines finding the pingers and the pingers are the same frequency, so they confused everybody. So lots and lots and lots of stuff came out of Swiss Air Triple One and we should have looked at that because that plane went in from 9,800 feet, not 35,000 feet. Uh, and so, and it's, it's funny, isn't it? Sometimes... You know, so with crash investigations, sometimes we do quickly learn lessons. Um, and to a certain degree, if the the crash of MH370 has taught us anything, it's that we're not learning quick enough. We're not, we, we really aren't implementing things that, you know, even since uh, the, 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 the accident with a, uh, Air France AF447, you know, where there were recommendations made then about the tracking of um, uh, flights over open expanses of water that, that, you know, we still haven't done. And we really even now, after MH370, we're only starting to do. I mean, you mentioned there about the, um, the submarines and the pingers. And, you know, we had similar mess-ups with the... Uh, surface search um for the flight data recorders of mh370 where confusion between the the sounds emanating from vessels on the surface being confused mm. with with, with uh, the pingers from the um the the, the flight uh, recorders and and i deal with that in my recommendations and uh you know to their credit um uh, pinger life has now been increased to 90 days mm -hmm. and that's as a result of this crash and uh, in conjunction with the 447 and um, A350s are going to have ejectable flight recorders in them. Wow, isn't this fantastic? Uh, you know, there's a, a, a congressman who in America who's tried four times to get this up since 1992 when it was first put up. And it was recommended by South Africa after a 747 freighter crashed. And the South Africans came up with this recommendation in the 1990s. I think it's Mike Chillett who told me that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and show me the crash report, and there it is in black and white, you know, ejectable flight recorders. So, what did the US Air Force do? They stuck them in all their planes and the Navy, you know. So, it's all the military it's, planes it's have got ejectable flight that recorders. Came from the military. You know, and they've been in since the 1990s. Mm. And, and four times Congress has knocked back a, requ a recommendation to put them in brand new airplanes. They cost 60,000 bucks 
are you serious? And so Airbus has gone ahead and done it themselves in the A350. Well, we should have had ejectable flight recorders since the year 2000. And it's really criminal that we haven't. Regarding, at the end of your book, you go through quite a number of, of recommendations. Just uh, give us some of the other recommendations that perhaps we haven't, we haven't touched on. Let, let me quickly go through yeah, them. Sure. Number one, the smoke fire fumes checklist. I've got a much better idea for that. Let's do it back to front because no way we're doing it. The way we're doing it now doesn't work. And so what I want us to do is I want to turn it backwards. So what we're going to do is turn off the systems, turn off all the systems that we, we could have problems with, and we're going to reinstate them later only after they've been tested as safe. Now, it's not too hard to, to do that, is it? I mean, it's happening right now in your radio studio. Mm -hmm. A piece of smoke comes out from the mixing disc and you hear it pop and the, and, and the safety switch in your house has just turned off that circuit. And when you've tested it safe, you can, you can have it back again. Mm -hmm. Well, we should have this in aeroplanes. And we sure as hell uh, need to make a checklist that is so simple and that, that can't fail. And, and part of the things about if we have a, 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 smoke, a fumes event and we turn the packs off straight away, the air conditioning packs, then the cabin immediately starts rising. But it doesn't rise like it used to in the old 737s and, and, and 727s. These aeroplanes are made by robots and they're made of carbon fibre and the machining is incredible. You can actually turn the packs off and nothing happens. So the good thing about the 777 and the A380 is that the cabin altitude is around 6,500 feet. And so if they climb at 500 feet per minute, You've got a long time, you've got more than four, four or five minutes before you actually start ringing the bells for the cabin altitude being high. And so, and that doesn't hurt you anyway. So you've got four or five minutes to troubleshoot. And even if you are going to do a dirty dive and get down to 10,000 feet where you can open up the, the airplane and, and get fresh air blowing through it, that helps you because you've actually raised the cabin altitude to pretty close to the, the level you're going to be at when you get to the bottom of the emergency descent. So there's a lot of good things about that. So I'm saying redesign the checklist completely and I'll tell you how to do that. I want cameras everywhere. Now on the 380 we've got lots of cameras in the cabin. We've got cameras that look at the from the tail of the aeroplane and look down on the wings and we've also got a tail uh, and in that you can look at where the landing gear is when you're taxiing around on the ground. 777's got that too. Um, but I want lots of cameras. I want them in the, ra in, the, in the cargo compartment. I want them in the wheel wells. I want them anywhere that we can have fires. I want to have a look inside. Why not? And, and while we're putting cameras, I would like a camera looking down on the representative surface of the wing, which is a part of the wing that we have to look at when we're doing de-icing uh, before we take off to see if any ice has reformed on a representative surface, which is the first place they start the de-icing. And so let's have high definition cameras and lights sh shining on that if you want to have a look at that. I want should, test equipment. Should, should we have, because uh, this, this is also a point which pilots debate an awful lot privately, should we have cameras in the cockpit? Yeah, why not? You know, if the person wants to see if the pilots are alive, I mean, we can see her and we can see anyone coming in the flight deck door. Mm -hmm. So surely the person should be able to look in and see if both pilots are awake, you know, because we have a problem with pilots falling asleep. That's another, that's another uh, subject for another podcast and a fantastic yep. book about that. <laughs> um, test equipment. Now, listen, 
in 50 years' time, you're a lawyer. And I say to you, hey, Mick, can you believe that in 50 years ago, we used to pump air into an airplane and we had no idea of the quality of that air? Yep. And we didn't even know if it was smoke or if there was bits of uh, abrasive. You get this ablative material from the, t- from, the bla- from the N1 blades when they hit the, the special uh, fabric that the engines spin around and sometimes that gets in as well. So, you know, you want to actually sample the air in each side of the air- aircraft and as much as putting a piece of glass tube going past the pilots so that they can shine light in and see if there's smoke in there, you know, but really you could fill it up with smoke detectors and chemical detectors and anything you wanted. So I want test equipment to see what's, what we're doing to these passengers. I want auto fire suppression. Now we have auto fire suppression for APUs. So the APU will just shut down uh, on the ground at the airport. I want to have that in the cargo compartments and there's a secret I'm going to tell you. Mm-hmm. And I don't want your listeners to tell everyone because everyone gets a little bit scared when they hear this. Did you know that if you're flying with me and we've got a fire in the forward cargo compartment and we press the fire, we, we press a few things. Firstly, we seal it up and then we press a fire extinguisher and th- that floods that compartment with halon, which stops any oxygen mm-hmm. being involved and the fire is going to go out. And then a second bottle dribbles hail on in over the next three hours or five hours if it's a 787 can you believe Mm -hmm. to make sure that it's topped up and there's never any oxygen in the cargo compartment so the fire can't possibly start up again but what you've done when you press those buttons and you force the cargo fire extinguisher into that cargo compartment is that you now are not protecting the rear one so we've got all these airplanes that are flying around with a, the forward compartment sealed, but the rear one's now unprotected. And we, you know, we don't wait three hours, trust me. You wait a few seconds and then you say, I'm on the ground. Why am I on the ground? We call it the decision switch. Once you've made the decision to use that fire extinguisher in the cargo compartment, mate, you're on the way down because you might have controlled the forward cargo, but what if something happens in the rear? You've got no protection now. And so I'm saying stick more bottles. I want to have fire protection for both cargo areas. I want find my engine. Now, you know, we have these engines. They're monitored by Rolls-Royce and you turn the monitoring on or off depending on how much you want to pay. And quite frankly, when you've got a lot of aeroplanes, um, you've got a lot of engines to monitor and they're most of them are running really well so you don't bother with it. But a lot of these engines these days are powered by the hour. So actually the, the, the engine or the airframe is owned by some consortium of lawyers in London who got together and said, right, oh, when they were playing polo one day, they said, hey, listen, fellas, why don't we buy a $22 million engine and we'll rent it out to BA and uh, they'll pay for it when, it when it flies. Well, a great idea is whacking a, a chip on it so that like a, an iPhone app that has find my engine so you know where your engine is at all times. I want to have ejectable flight recorders. We've discussed that, um, how that should work. I want to have clever pingers. I want to have pingers. They're already going to 90 days, but there's got to be something smarter, and that is a pinger that when you drop it in the sea, it knows it's in the sea because the pressure starts increasing. And when it realizes where it is, because we're now going to know where planes are, that it decides to hibernate for the time it takes people to get there. Because it says, okay, we're in the water. Now we're looking for uh, recovery. 
We know why the plane, where the plane went in because of this other technology that we've now developed. And the pinger is about where the black boxes are. So we're, let's wait till everyone comes around. And so in that time, it's going to hibernate for a period of time. And then when it starts pinging, it's going to use its energy to ping at a really, really loud rate because it knows it's a long way down. And that's a problem with pingers is that they don't have enough volume. Mm-hmm. And so you can conserve your energy. And when you do it, you do it really loud. But, you know, Australia, because we're the cleanest third world country on the planet, have just invested in diesel powered submarines that are going to come in about 25 years time. Now, in 25 years time, we are going to be flooded with drones and we're going to have drones instead of submarines because why would you want to go underwater when you can, you know, you can't be on Facebook if you're on in a submariner. So you could actually send your drone down there to do all the work that submarines do and you could put five or six drones around where the plane's gone down and they can audio map the entire sea seabed for that whole time. And so when the pinging starts, they can eliminate all the audio of the sea and just have the sound of the pinging so that they can make quick position lines. And while we're talking about it, each pinger can have its own uh, tail number so that you don't get in the same situation that Swiss Air Triple One had of having pingers of the same frequency. So you could have uh, two types of pingers uh, or you know, each digital flight recorder and the voice recorder would have different serial numbers and they should be transmitted. I want to have find my aircraft and this is uh, looking at all the technology that you can have now uh, to use ADS-C to find where every airplane in the world is in every nine minutes and this happens now over the Pacific Ocean between Australia, New Zealand and the United States. They're using ADS-C and it's completely oblivious to the pilots and the controller uh, gets uh, your location every, it's got to be by law soon, uh, less than 15 minutes, so it's going to be 14 minutes, but I think they're doing it about 10 or 9 minutes at the moment. But if there's something funny going with the aeroplane, a set number of parameters, it pings on ADS-C and tells the controller, hey, watch this. And if the p- controller presses a button, he can, he can get real-time uh, response. So he can just sit, sit there tapping his finger on the button and getting pinging pretty much all the time. So that ADS-C is happening. But what happens when the power goes off and this is what's happened with MH370 none of these new fantastic tracking satellite systems help you because if you if if you lose your transponder if you lose yeah, ADS-C see, yeah. see you later well there's a guy in Melbourne called Lorne Cole who's um, decided that he wants something like this for his corporate jets that he's got in air ambulances and he's come up with a fantastic product which is hardwired into the to the hot battery bus and it's live downloading a flight data recording and it's uploaded to a satellite downloads into switzerland and you can actually have real-time um digital flight data every parameter that's changed is recorded and downloaded real time and you can use it for telephony and satellite TV and all sorts of drama as well so this is S-Track in Australia it's quite the most spectacular thing because when all else fails this system still keeps working if the plane's still flying this is going to be telling you so I'll tell you all about that in the in the book uh, oxygen masks look the the uh, oxygen mask is a, is a cumbersome thing and people tend not to put them on and so let's 
sit down and redesign the fantastic Eros masks that came out in the 1990s, which changed us. Like, we used to have these little goggles in the 727 and this oxygen mask. We used to put the goggles on, like safety goggles, and you'd plug these two pieces of plastic tubing from the goggles into the oxygen mask and you purge the mask and that supposedly gets the smoke out of, the, out of your eyes. Well, when the Eros mask came in 1993 or whatever it was, it changed our life and it's fantastic, but it's now over 20 years old, so it's time to upgrade oxygen masks and make them so pilots want to wear them for troubleshooting. They want to wear them, put the mask on immediately, and so then we can decide to take it off rather than putting the mask on if we think we need to put it on. If we've got lithium battery problems, and I don't think this aeroplane had a lithium battery cargo problem for a number of reasons I'll go in the box, even though there were uh, 220 kilos of batteries or whatever carried on this aeroplane and they didn't even tell the captain about it. I don't think these batteries caught fire because the systems now after UPS 6 are fantastic. The cargo control by the uh, Malaysian Airlines and all, all the ICAO members is very, very good packaging, etc. So I, I'm not concerned that this is a lithium cargo battery problem. But if it is, well, then we're going to change the rules and say, that's it, we're not carrying any of this stuff anymore. Because, you know, despite the best plans, and uh, as your close personal friend said last week, we're not going to talk about politics. Well, I've got to tell you, <laughs> taking lithium lithium batteries out of passengers in ca in in the I'm cabin in the laptop the cargo, and yeah. putting in the cargo compartment. If you really think that this has any bearing on flight safety, mate, we've got a bigger problem. If you're saying that I can get a bomb through a security mm. at Melbourne or Dubai or JFK Airport, well then we've got a bigger issue than whereabouts on that plane that battery is parked. Mm. So. That's about lithium batteries and, and uh, you know, we should make some dramatic change if it turns out that this is the case. And just as an aside, before I get to the big item, which is the, the reason that this book's been written, carry-on baggage. Now, we've seen three crashes or three events worldwide where passengers have got off aeroplanes and taken their baggage in an and taken their bags off. We've, taken, we've seen them in, in Dubai on the 777. We saw them in in uh, Las Vegas in America. And, and so when, when we see these passengers walking off with a roller, <laughs> roller bag behind yeah, them, bonkers. we have to say, you know, stop trying to blame the passengers because the system doesn't work anymore. We know they're going to take the bags off. Culturally, a lot of these cultures carry the gold with them, mm -hmm. especially if they've been working overseas as a guest worker and you've been there for 18 months you want to take presents home to your wife and kids and they may be in the form of gold, you're not going to get off that plane without taking your bag. So we've got to talk about changing the way we do cabin baggage. And maybe uh, that means really small baggage compartments. Maybe it means really small allocations uh, where we can make bags a special cabin. A special cabin bag that passengers are allowed to use because we want them to have their medication. We want them to have their iPhones. We want them to have their lithium batteries that are going to catch fire. I want them in the cabin because the cabin crew are trained to deal with them. So we, we need a lot of stuff. We need their documents and their money and their things that people are going to need in their bags and in the cabin. The, the other but if they are, we, we know they're going to take them off. If you, if you lock the, if you lock the cabin bag... I was going to say that, yeah. 
they're just going to burn to death in the aisle trying to open the doors. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm, 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 I'm blocking the aisle uh, trying to uh, open the thing. Yeah, it, yeah it, it's course. a point uh, and a discussion I, I had with somebody, and he, he, he was a pilot, and that was the first thing he said to me. He said, "Mick, it all sounds great in theory, but you're going to have yeah. you're going to have you know twenty or thirty people blocking an aisle, uh, bashing, hammering uh, the the the." Um, the door to try and get yeah, it open, so, so it, it doesn't, it doesn't so like resolve the, it, the problem. It's like the, the smoke fire fumes checklist. It's broken, and we've got to fix it, but let's not try and do the same thing. Let's recognise passengers will take this stuff off. Mate, I've got to tell you, I'm sitting here quietly telling you, I'm not leaving my plane that, as I'm a passenger without my wallet, my passport, my phone. There's just no way I'm going to get off the plane without that stuff. And... And, like, I'm smart. I put it on my person before the plane comes into land. Yep. Most people don't. But I've got to tell you, you don't want to be stuck anywhere around on the wrong side of the world uh, without any money, wallet, passport, uh, or phone these days. So, you know, it's not as if we say, oh, well, it's those sort of people that do it. It's all of us are going to be in the same situation on the given day, I think. So we're going to look at the way we do baggage. But uh, the reason that I want to uh, get this book out there and I want to change the way the world does stuff is because the way this investigation has been handled from the very, very beginning. And that is, I don't think that Mick Rooney, if you are on a plane that crashes in some sub-Saharan country, that your family should get less crash investigation professionalism than if your plane crashes in London Heathrow Airport. So I'm saying, because... It's a global business now. We shouldn't have these stuff-ups and delays and uh, we should have ICAO, elite crash investigation. And so every single member of IATA raises $1 per, per ticket that goes every year into a fund. We're talking $3.6 billion every year. Now, you can put it in the, in the bank and, and draw a 4% a year and run the world's best crash investigation, but what immediately would happen would be the best of the best in each country get selected to go and work on this amazing ICAO system. And the ICAO crash investigation just comes in and does its stuff, and the local people can help and are used to help, but the actual investigation is done by professionals uh now we are very lucky in the ups this whole industry i've got to tell you we've got to thank a man from new zealand who's working for the gcaa in dubai on ups6 now that crash investigator and i don't know his name and i probably should he found a lithium battery in the car park that the 747 crashed into one little lithium battery and because he was the person he is probably like an Aussie, a pedantic, you know, they used to say, <laughs> you know, we used to get called astronauts because Australia is so pedantic, uh, you know, but the astronauts from Australia, well, you know, Kiwis are very close friends of ours. So this pedantic bastard picked this up and he would not give in until he found out what this thing was. And because of this guy, we now know about lithium batteries and how dangerous they are. Now, we've lost planes in crashes all around the world and 
there's been clues out there that have been missed by lesser people than him, is all I can say. And so I'd like to have ICAO elite crash investigation. And if nothing else comes out of this crash, let's make uh, make it for the future that, you know, there's a legacy left for these poor passengers and their families. Because too often um, we've witnessed this and I'm really, I think this has been going on since the 1970s, 1980s, where we've had accidental shoot-downs of, uh, of aircraft. But too often, you know, post-accident, we see investigations become highly politicised, which is good for no one, uh, and certainly not the, the, the passengers. That's right. It's all political, and there's, look, there's a lot of corruption. I mean, you know, anyone who's flown in some airports in Africa and you get in there and you see the UN and how that operates and you just go, wow, like, you know, there's a large amount of money in this this uh, industry. And and it's, I guarantee not every dollar is getting to the people that you think it's getting to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and if there's vested interests, well, the best way to get rid of conspiracy theories is with education. And, and if, you know, you can't have a conspiracy theory if you know that the, the SWAT team's going to arrive in a few hours with the best of the best in, on board. You know, they're going to dispel all this stuff. You know, they're going, and hopefully we're not going to ever have a situation where a plane's gone missing and no one raises a distress phase for three and a half hours. You know, that's, that's hopefully all this is history. James, I'd, I'd, I'd like to, as we, as we move towards finishing up, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about the aviation industry, um, the media, how it, how it deals kind of uh, with aviation. The, the, some of the, the most common questions I get are, um, Flying camp. I, I'm, I keep hearing about all these air crashes. Uh, 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 you know, uh, aviation can't be as safe uh, as as it used to be, and you, you know that's complete nonsense. If anything, aviation and aircraft are probably safer now than at any time ever. Can you just talk a little bit about where the the industry is going, and, and we touched on some of this in, in your, your own um, recommendations from the book. But I, I'm, I'm thinking of this more from the public's, you know, Joe public and their perception, because there does seem, and I think it's very much certainly post uh, MH370 and since 2014, but even before that, I think in general over the last 10 years, there's been, on the one hand, uh, a massive public interest in the aviation industry. I suppose it's because uh, more and more of us are traveling shorter distances and using flight to do that when years ago we would have got the train uh, or, or a, 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 long, you know, a, a, a long bus journey. So more and more ordinary people are in their daily life or in a typical year are using aircraft more but there there is a perception that I constantly keep getting back that, that I feel is wrong that the aviation industry is somehow not as safe now as it as it, it once was can you just talk a little bit around that well it's usually 
uh, what's happened is, is in the last few years, there's been a, a, a change in the location of the crashes. Now, up until very recently, every um, 95% of the crashes were in the blue box, which was like seven nautical miles yeah. each end of the runway and uh, up to 3,000 feet. And pretty much if you got out of it on your way out and went on your takeoff and before you got into it for landing, you know, you were safe. And nothing much happened on route except every every 10 every 20 years we had a mid-air uh, with two airplanes on the same airway and so then we've we've fixed those systems we've fixed so many systems we've fixed air traffic control systems there's very few places where they where they are uh, two-way air routes uh, comparatively in the world a lot of the places they there's sort of racetrack uh, one one goes one way and the other route goes the other way um, and so we've fixed all these systems. The air, air traffic systems have alarms in them, so when someone goes off track, they get uh, the controller gets a message about it, and bells ring and stuff. And you know, for the systems, um, I think the big fright that people are talking about this week in Australia is uh, they're talking about robotics and oh, the future of work with robots. Well, crikey, let's get an let's get a flight engineer. Let's get Mark Baker here, and he can tell you for an hour and a half about what what it was like being a flight engineer, tapped on the shoulder. And they said, well, we're, you know, see you later. There's a 727s out the door. In comes the A320. And it's only got two seats. And so we've been flying these robots around the sky. You know, the A380's got like 135 computers. And, and, and the work done by the fuel management computer is, you know, it's a full-time job if you try to do it yourself. So these are robots that we're operating. And things are getting much, much safer. All that repetitive stuff is getting safer and safer. So we've had a spate of car plane crashes that's happened in midair, and that's just not normal. Mm -hmm. And it started off with this one, and then it start. Then we had the German wings, and then we and had then the macho uh, as well. You know, and for for planes to actually crash in midair uh, has been pretty rare. You know, and that's whether it's a shoot down or whether it's a bomb in mid flight, like the Russian one in mm -hmm. Egypt, and and so so these these are uh, scaring people. But really, it is getting safer and safer and safer. Uh, but the problem is, because it's getting safer and safer and safer, and, and, and people like me have retired because my, my era has retired, and, I, and I'm a young one. So you know, all those old guys I looked up at, and they gave me the wisdom. They're, they've been retired for five or ten years. And airlines are now run by accountants and lawyers. And there's no one with a, a sense of aviation uh, sitting in the seat up top. And so... You know, if the CEO has is only focused on the next five years and making making money uh, before he retires, and hopefully getting himself a nice parachute if he leaves early, well then, what hope have you got of making it an aviation industry? Because an aviation industry is very different to other industries. It's the youngest industry in the world. It's the only industry in the world where women get paid the same as men to do the same job. Whoopie do, uh, you know it is, and it's made a lot of mistakes it, as as an industry, but it's learning all the time. But now there's a lot of lawyers and accountants running things, and they think flying is safe, mate. It's only safe because people take pride in what they do, and the pilots and the engineers and the air traffic controllers have their own high standards. And as soon as people start thinking that it's a, a a given that you're going to have a safe flight from here to there, uh, you're in trouble. And would you say that the media in general, and I know we've even on, on on social media, we've often touched on this as well. Would you say that the uh, general mainstream media 
uh, is dealing with aviation in a different way now. We often, you know, right from the outset of um, uh, the, the the investigation into MH370, I remember thinking even on that weekend, God, you know, I wish more and more um, media outlets had dedicated people who understood the aviation industry because far too often well, this, it gets scary part about someone who, who has, is, is really clueless. Well, the problem is uh, we got some fantastic aviation journos in the world, you know, people who really are mm-hmm. professional and and know a lot about the business. And I'm talking about the guys from Flight International and, you know, people mm-hmm. like that. And we got one from Crikey, Ben Sandlands in Australia. Yeah, he's he's yeah. world class. And, and these people who are world famous and highly regarded aviation journos like David Learmonth, they say things like, mm-hmm. um, okay, let's wait and see what happens because... They they give you their best guess and then they sit back and say, well, we have to wait. But that's not good enough because mm-hmm. it's a 24-hour media cycle. So we need a uh, an inexperienced non-aviation journalist interviewing another inexperienced non-aviation person or oh, journalist. Oh, talking heads, yeah. Yeah, to, and, and, and while the people are in the know are sitting back there saying, well, when I've got something to tell you, I'll, I'll write a story about it because, you know, at the moment we sit back and watch. And this whole thing blew up and, of course... Uh, I wasn't aware because you know we're working. You know we fl- we fly at night and sleep during the day. So, so all this crap that was going on at the time, we just turned to our people like Ben Sandlands and David Learmonth and so, just thought, well, we'll wait and see what are they saying. And they're saying, well, no, no more news yet, guys. You know, oh look, it's in the Southern Ocean. And so, you know, so we just keep touching on them, not realizing that there's a whole heap of bobbleheads carrying on about you know. Making America great? No, it does. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> no, part. no, let's, let's, let's not do a Trump train again. <laughs> <laughs> but really, you know, I just think it's so funny. Uh, it's so funny in hindsight, but I keep tempering it with, you know, there's passengers, there's pilots, cabin crew. I flew with my one of my purses had come from Malaysia, and he had done this flight with that crew. Many times, and he knew everyone on that plane. And you know, this guy and I working together. And I said, "You sure you want to go to work? Like, you know, it's like losing one of your best mates." Yeah, absolutely. And, family member. You know, and these and, and airline crews do become like family members to you because they're the only ones who understand you for a start. That you've got this weird sleeping pattern in Hong Kong. At, you know, you're trying to sleep in New York and in the afternoon, and you're wide awake at four o'clock in the morning when you should be asleep and that. So you actually do develop these bonds with these people. And it's not only the other cabin crew. Let's talk about the security lady. A friend of mine went through uh, Nabjot Singh, who's a fantastic journal in England, uh, and he does a lot of aviation stuff. And he went to the security guard uh, area at uh, KL International Airport and, and spoke to them. And they said, "Oh, yeah, we knew Captain Shah, you know." And he was, you know, we've been doing this for 20 years, and we see him all the time, you know. And I was on that night when they went, you know, and those people are getting counselling, and it's like. And the security guards at, at airports that we interact with every day, they're just like, you know, friends of ours at work. And so this has affected everybody, this crash. And to see um, people slandered in the, the press for no reason with no evidence has been quite annoying. And, of course, we all sat back waiting to see 
the experts, our great aviation journos, and they weren't front page news. You know, you might you might read them on page twenty five on a Friday. Yeah. You might you might read one of them, but in terms of the the story, the guy who uh, hopefully listens to this, who's a, an Australian journo who has been covering this story, you know, I I sent him my copy of my book, and you know, he he says he hasn't got time to read it. Well, I've done some research, and I found out the last book he wrote he ever read was in about when he was 12 years of age probably mm-hmm. it's probably john and betty yeah so you know and this guy's leading the thought leader in australian media it is, and he's, it is he's, he, he doesn't think enough about these people on that plane passengers or crew to bother to read thirty thousand words yeah and, and i'll even mark it up for him you know <laughs> I'll, I'll send him the thousand words that matter if he really wants but you know, yeah, this maybe, is the sort of people. Maybe he's waiting for you to do uh, uh, an audio book so he can just sit back and listen. Well, yeah, my mate Peter Krieger's doing one for me right now. Well, there so the you audio go. book's coming out soon. And, and I've got to tell you, uh, before all the nutters just get back on and start saying that I'm crazy like everyone else, uh, this book has been reviewed on Amazon by 60 people and it's been interviewed by a huge number of industry people and I've really been staggered. Uh, people have come out of the woodwork, uh, top industry people, and read my book and said, at last somebody is, is uh, treating this with the respect that it deserves and has got an idea that makes sense to them. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've read the uh, the crash of MH uh, three hundred and seventy uh, a few months back uh, when it first came out uh, as an ebook, and I I highly uh, recommend it uh, to anyone um, who who has not even if if even if you're not um, uh, specifically um, interested in the MH three hundred and seventy uh, case, but in general about aviation, it, it's a fabulous uh, aviation um, book. Thank you. I think I think what we got to point out in is we know when it turned, and soon we're going to know where it ended up. Mm-hmm. What happened between it turning and ending up? Really, Mick, who cares? Like you know, the plane crashed. When we get the black boxes, then they'll start finding out why. And you know, to their credit, the Malaysians and the ATSB, their job is where. That's their job is Absolutely, where is the yeah. wreck. And when they've got the wreck, then they'll start saying, okay, why did it crash? And so we're all asking why of people whose job is to find out where, and we should let them get on with their job. And it upsets me to think that for some reason they've stopped doing their job. Well, there's a few guys down in Tasmania, and there's a few guys working for Inmarsat who haven't given up. And I think we've just got to applaud them and let them keep on going. And and if you want to have a look at this book, if you don't want to have a look at this book, I don't care, but just contact your politicians and say listen would you please have a look 35 degrees south seven arc and it'll only take you about you know a no, month, I, maybe. I, I think i think less than a, a month if for for the area that i, I don't exactly don't, i don't think uh, david griffin has has um i know he spoke at uh, in darwin uh, at, a, at a, a marine institute and i i don't know whether speci- I, I don't have a recording of of uh, his speech there um, so but I, I, you know, you you got to understand. I don't think we're looking for an aeroplane, and this is what came yeah, at us. We said triple one. We're looking for debris, and it's not going to be very pretty debris at all. And uh, we're looking for one black box. That's what we're looking for. We don't need the voice recorder. They they would have recorded over itself. We're looking for tiny bits of information on the digital flight data recorder, and that's what we're looking for. 
Yeah, Sadly, and, 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 you know? and it is sad, and this is what baffled me because uh, in the early stages of this um, this investigation, when the, I suppose at the initial stage when the the public were so energized about asking the, the as we've just said, the why is when you know we, we can't tell you why yet, and um, we we had all that crazy you know Tom Nod satellite picture nonsense stuff of people. You know, using their their iPhones and trying to find the plane and looking oh, and that looks like a plane. You know, on that satellite picture and you know it's an important point you make and we can't stress that enough. Um, and when we we talked about the impact point, you know, for uh, MH370 and and you know one one of the the, the perhaps closest. Uh, similarities in in what we may find is the the, the swiss air flight uh, off nova scotia I, I can't emphasize enough to people that when an aircraft crashes at sea at velocity it is like hitting solid concrete it, it you know the, the, the public have some this perception that that somehow a, a crash at sea if it's at nose down at velocity is you know is somehow you're going to have massive bits of wing you're going to have half a fuselage you know here uh, you know it that's not the way it works that's not what happens it is no in fact in devastating. fact in fact in, in in fact in my book i look at the crashes that, that have examined this which again the atsb haven't dwelt on which uh is not their role, but I'm trying to do it to explain mm-hmm. to people what really happens. You know, when you take a trip seven five seven and you put it into the side of the Pentagon, how the wings fold up and it goes in, you know, at at two fifty knots. You know, this is just incredible, mind blowing. And when someone says, "Oh, that's mind blowing," this truly does blow your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't really understand the physics of how brutal physics can be when it happens, or the uh, Colorado Springs 737 crash that went in, you know, and the hole that it made was just bigger than the circumference of the fuselage, or the Everglades crash, or the uh, the one in uh, Malaysia where the where the A320 went into the to the um, river and the pilot suicide, you know, how can a whole airplane go into a river and never be seen? Exactly. Like it's just mind blowing, but it did, and and. You just got to understand, physics is uh, what makes these things stay up there. And when they come down like a piano, phew, physics is the make that's physics makes them explode into millions of pieces. And uh, it's just hard to believe. And that's all right. It's like it's like space. You know, I don't, I can't understand a black hole, and I never will. And I don't understand more than one galaxy. I try and get my head around it, but you know, I can't understand there's a billion galaxies. It just doesn't doesn't compute. That's all right. James, I just want to focus a little bit on on you. And incidentally, um, uh, when when we uh, publish and release this um, video podcast, uh, all the links uh, to James's uh, website and the book itself will be will be uh, down below in in the links. But just James, I ask every pilot this um, that I, I talk to, you know, 
you you became a pilot. I think I think twenty six were you when you was that when you started training? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I fell fell in love when I with flying when I was about four or five years of age, and uh, when I was eleven, a very inspirational uh, math teacher told me about his time flying Catalinas in the Second World War, and he inspired me to be mm-hmm. a pilot. And a few years later, a science teacher stole my dream, told me I didn't know anything about science, and chucked me out of the class. Okay. So, uh, and that when you meet a dream stealer, somebody yeah. who, who steals your kids' dreams, um, you know those people should be put in jail because I believed him, and and that meant that I could never be a pilot, which is all I wanted to do. So it took till I was 26 and running my own company and had enough money to go to the airport and um, and just take up flying a light airplane. And suddenly I thought, hey, I can do this, and going ahead and doing it. So yes, it's been a lifelong dream. And I think it's one thing that always comes across me when, when I talk to pilots, whether it's online or in real life. You know, it is very much because, uh, as you've, you know, you know, there, there's a, a a connotation that it, it's a glamorous lifestyle, but, but you know, the realities are it's 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 tough going. Um, well, let, let's just just let me remember that before I started flying, I knew 19 people who had been killed in aviation crashes mm-hmm. in the time I, in Australia in the time I started flying, and uh, now that number's 23, and that includes a few people, uh, you know, good friends of mine. So uh, it's a brutally dangerous industry, mm-hmm. and if uh, you think you can get in this job and not see death. Uh, and go right through it well you know good on you but good luck to you i hope you never have to go what what we did in the 80s and 90s uh when general aviation airplanes weren't as safe and the systems weren't as safe and there was a lot of press on items which still happens every sunday afternoon some poor idiot in a light airplane decides he's going to get home because he has to go to work tomorrow morning and he presses on into darkness when he can't fly in darkness or he presses on in in um into cloud and crashes in cloud but um I think we lose many, many pilots um, live through it these days. We're in the old days. Pretty much every flight deck, every pilot that you've sat next to on a cockpit could name 20 people he knows who have been killed in, in aviation crashes. Give us some of the wackiest and most wonderful things that have happened to you over your, your career as a pilot. I think I was very honoured to be able to fly the A380 over the Melbourne Cup, which is a horse race mm-hmm. down here. Right. And uh, and it was the um, my 20th and anif- 25th anniversary of my flying career, and also 25th anniversary of the airline. And um, I think it was 125 years of the Melbourne Cup. So to fly over 200,000 people in an A380, you did it twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, low 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 level pass. That was quite exciting. But there's been hundreds and hundreds, uh, like, you know, to sit there and watch the um, Leonard meteor shower every November, I think it is, uh, coming back from Tanzania, heading towards the middle, uh, to the Middle East at about four o'clock in the morning and then seeing meteors go every few seconds uh, to see the northern lights flying over Greenland. In fact, when you, when you actually fly over the North Pole, you don't really see the northern lights very well. You see them right outside the windscreen. I've got some spectacular pictures of that. But in terms of to see them as uh, as a big event, uh, they're better when you're over, uh, so probably over uh, Greenland looking up. Um, hundreds and hundreds of locations and places and good weather and hideous weather. Uh, all of these situations, just this blur of a blur of them from I think landing in every airport I've ever wanted to, except the old Kai Tak, 
in Hong Kong. I've, I only ever landed in Kai Tak in the simulator. I never, never. Uh, by the time I got to fly into, into Hong Kong, it was the new airport. But um, yeah, I've I was always worried that I'd get sick of going to London or John F Kennedy Airport, and um, you know, and I never did. Uh, but uh, I got sick of the uh, the regulation and the the uh, the business. The business is very very tiring now. Uh, when I used to fly the seven two seven. Oh, the A320, the manuals for the 727 were about 300 pages. The manual for the A3, A3, A320 was about, I suppose, about 800 pages over four manuals. Uh, the uh, A380, I think it's 8,327 pages for the flight crew operating manual alone. And then you've got all sorts of other manuals as well. And you're meant to know all this stuff, you know, and it's just very, very hard keeping up with all the changes. It's no fun anymore. Well, that's interesting. You say it's it's no fun anymore, and I, 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 to an extent, I'd agree with you. I think you've you've definitely got to not just have a dedication. I think you, you've really got to have a passion if if you decide that you know aviation uh, uh, is is your career move. Because um, I think if you don't have that, you, you'll quickly get worn down. Well, you can't have days off. You can't go away on weekends. Yeah. You know, when you, when you, all the stuff now pilots have to do at home. So all the study that has to be done has to be done at home on your own time. Uh, you know, your flight plan, it takes, you know, 60 pages of flight plan everywhere you go, 60 pages. Now you've got to read 60 pages of NOTAMs and make a decision on how much fuel you're going to take or whatever. Well, 60 pages takes two hours to read. Well, you've got 20 minutes. Yeah. 20 minutes, you know, before as you sign on to get all this stuff done. Well, you can't do that. So you, you download the flight plan two hours earlier and then you sit there and you read it as fast as you can and as best as you can over about 30 minutes. And that's your own time. You don't get paid for that, you know. And it's quite funny. I'd love to actually sit some, see someone uh, go through a pilot's life and say, or a cabin crew and say, hang on, you know, don't do that now because you're not getting paid for yeah, that. Well, yeah. bad luck. This industry doesn't work like that. Yeah, Absolutely. Is the industry going more to well, uh, single oil jets? Are we moving away from the wide body uh, jets? I seem to be seeing uh, because I know that uh, Aer Lingus, I think it's um, Norwegian Air as well, and have now started transatlantic uh, flights and are, are using uh, the, the 737-800 now uh, on, on the, the transatlantic track from, I think, Dublin to uh, Boston. Are we seeing the industry go more that way? You know, because obviously it's, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a fuel-efficient, it's, it's a finance-driven industry. Well, it's, uh, if you can get fuel for 40 bucks a barrel, uh, you can do more flights more often. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole philosophy of the 787, more flights more often. Yeah. But... Uh, and the A380 was designed when fuel was became $132 a barrel. Yeah. Okay, so that wasn't too long ago. And anyone who thinks fuel's not going to be $132 a barrel again is insane yeah. because it is going to be that price one day in the future. And all those people who said that the, the uh, A380s are dud, they'll all come out of the woodwork and say, oh, yeah, we can't afford to fly 737s across into Heathrow uh, from St. Louis or wherever we're going to have to fly them to JFK and commuters and then they're all going to get the big fat plane and fly it across 
at the expenses uh, of a Toyota Prius in terms of fuel yeah, passenger per kilo. It's like our so, money industry, it's, it's cyclical. Yeah, so at 40 bucks a barrel, you're right. Single island planes, single aisle planes are probably going to be good. But I have a feeling uh, in my bones that the A380 is a spectacular airplane to take 545 passengers. Mm-hmm. And I, my record was uh, the two, the two class one to Riyadh. I think I took 618 passengers. It's a lot of passengers. It is a lot of passengers. Um, are you concerned about the absolute explosion in? Budget airlines, is that something that can change it, or is well, it more? Well, it's, it's it's crippling crippling the Gulf in terms of air traffic control because they all have to fly over Muscat, and now those Muscat controllers do a spectacular job. They really do. But what used to happen was a, a, an Air France, uh, Air India seven four seven used to take off in Mumbai and land in Dubai. Well, now you've got about what five carriers flying A three twenties. And so there's a squadron of all these low-cost carriers in India, and they're, and they're being added to every second. You know, there's uh, Airbus factories right now printing these A320s like a, like a Gestetner machine. And so when you stick all these single aisle uh, low-cost carriers in the air, headed for the one place, the same place at the same time, that means airports are going to clog up. And I can really see a, a, a situation in Dubai airport where they're going to go enough, unless you're a wide body carrier, you're not going to land here. You can have to go to Muktum airport because we just can't take it. You know, because you just can't have that many uh, little planes clogging up airspace. And, and it really does cost a lot of money for a lot of carriers in the Middle East. Now, I haven't looked at what it has meant for uh, European um, aviation and also through the US, but uh, we've got to maybe sit back and think, you know, is this is this right? Because we the controllers are getting it right 99.999% of the time uh, and getting away with it. And there's a lot of things they're getting away with worldwide that, quite frankly, if they didn't get away with it, maybe the industry would have to change its attitude. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean... It, it it has a knock-on effect for everything, uh, uh, airports, air traffic control, and general safety. We've had two Air Asia incidents this last week in Melbourne, right. in, in Australia. We've had one of them had a fan come off in the in Western Australia and uh, was shaking to pieces. Now either the engine wasn't secured properly uh, for it shook all that time, or it was secured as much as they could, and they decided to fly down to Perth rather than go to Learmonth. Well. Um, you know, we know in the industry that when the engine shakes so much, it falls off the wing. Okay, so that doesn't really concern pilots because we know that when it gets to the point when it's going to damage the airplane, yeah, it's going to, and the engine just falls off the wing. And we got history, you know, we got 727s where the engines fell off the, the, the uh, tail as well. So we know this is going to happen and it doesn't really concern the pilots. But it sure as hell concerns people who've got video cameras, who iPhones, who are filming all this stuff and what it does publicly to the industry and to the airline. You know, even even someone like me saying maybe the guys didn't secure the engine properly. Well, of course they probably did because they're probably professional pilots. And the, the same thing happened when they took off the other day out of uh, Koolangatta and they're going to, back to Malaysia and, and they had birds on takeoff. Now, this is a classic bird strike on takeoff, the plane's gone boom, 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 same as it does with the compressor stall, and 
in no doubt in my mind, is this a compressor stall or an, a bird? And guess what? The controller said, hey, guess what? There's some bird carcasses on the runway. Yeah. So you'd reckon that this is pretty well handled. But passengers complained that the engine was spitting out sparks for a long time. And maybe the airplane, maybe the engine wasn't secure properly. We don't know. In, in, That'll in come fact, out in the investigation. One of, one of the uh, reports on that particular incident, and the moment I read it, I thought, well, you know, here we go. You know, this is another, uh, you know, inaccurate <laughs> eye, eyewitness, you know, you know, that there were sparks coming out of the engine before we took off. Uh, no, stop well, talking nonsense. Yeah. And it always, you know, you can always look at witnesses. In fact, I had lunch today with yeah. an homicide squad detective. You know, witnesses are the most unreliable thing. I mean, how how many people say they see fire before the plane hit the ground? Yeah. You know, and in Rostov, the, the uh, Dubai, whatever, the you know, the 737 that crashed at Rostov, exactly that. You know, the, the plane was on fire before it hit the ground. And yeah. it turns out there's no possible way the plane was on fire. But yeah. witnesses, their brains... Happen. And look, I, I've had the same situation. I had a, an engine shutdown and uh, diversion of an A330. So it's only got two engines and we closed one down because of an oil pressure uh, problem. Now, I, I know that, that it, it took me two minutes to identify that engine and shut it down because we sat there and we double confirmed anything because I said, like, this is serious. It's not in the simulator. Let's do it slowly, you know. And so we double-checked everything and we ran the engine down to idle and put it back up again and all that stuff, everything by the textbook. And then when I went with the crash investigators because they, they hadn't had any work, so they asked if they could run the software as if it had had a crash so that, you know, we could test everything to see if the systems worked. And I sat with the guy as he pulled up the digital flight data recorder um, information which is like an excel spreadsheet and mm-hmm. everything sampled every few yeah. seconds and there's the thousands yeah. of parameters it's incredible right so you sit there and you look at this thing now we had identified from the time the incident started happening to the time we shut the engine off was 21 seconds now i will tell you in a quarter law it happened it was two minutes you know i will guarantee we were going heading towards uh, the middle east before we turned back to go and land in in venice um i will guarantee you that was 10 minutes well it was actually only seven while the guys in in zagreb got all the traffic out the way and turned every you know so we could turn around so when i as a professional airline captain find that i can't tell time correctly and I have, you know, I have a gut feeling when, when we decided to land we had a crosswind so I wasn't going to use reverse thrust on the good engine until the airplane was on the ground and it was safe to use it and so I told the FO and said okay when we put the wheels on the ground we're gonna, it's going to be a bit before I put the reverse thrust if I use it at all well fully reverse was fully deployed after three seconds from touchdown but it felt like it was a minute so of course passengers aren't the best people to ask but when they've got an iPhone and they've stuck it up against the window of the, yeah. the AirAsia jet, and that's on the TV news within a few minutes, regardless of whether it was well handled or not, mm-hmm. there's these perceptions. And, of course, it happens to low-cost carriers more maybe because maybe there's more flights because, you know, they're low-cost carriers. I don't know. But um, certainly it's a thing that the industry has got to deal with. And if it is that the pilots aren't handling these things properly, well, then they've got to handle them properly. And, you know, I've come from an airline that has what I'm, I'm fully con- convinced is the best um, SOPs and standard operating procedures in the industry. And because they've got 130 nationalities of cabin crew and 105 nationalities of pilots, that they are so focused on 
SOPs because when you've got so many languages, you just can't have anyone doing ad hoc, ad hoc stuff. It's got to be all professional. And so maybe that's part of it. Maybe, maybe adherence to, uh, to SOPs is something that doesn't happen in other airlines that I haven't been uh, watching. I, I, I was in um, corporate flying for a while. Uh, it was an A320 VIP aircraft. And I, I've got to tell you, uh, I've seen some corporate flying people that uh, and attitudes that just shocked me as an airline mm-hmm. pilot and, and to think they're in the, some of these guys in the same airspace as us was a real shock yeah. you know and conversely I've seen some extremely professional VIP guys uh, corporate pilots who are really really super professional and super safe but I think there's no regulation in that industry and it's up to the quality of the chief pilot on the day James Nixon author of the crash of MH370. It's been a pleasure having you on Radio Spoil today. Um, you're very welcome, and I hope we can catch up and talk again. Thank you very much, Mick. It's been a pleasure being on. Thank you for being so gentle with me. I look forward to coming back again soon. All right. James, you take care. We'll talk again soon. Bye. Bye. Okay, thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our interview with James Nixon. You can catch up with us on uh, radioespoil.com. We have links, social media links, in wherever you are seeing this podcast, this video podcast, whether it's on SoundCloud, YouTube, wherever. Again, we'll catch up with you again. Take care.